where you know he says those that believe in me will never go hungry and those that come to me will never thirst and you see Jesus making these massive statements about himself um, you know the woman at the well uh, John 7 37 to 38 if you're thirsty come to me and there'll be rivers of living water that will flow from you and um, I just want to encourage us again you know there, there is a there is a reality to be discovered in him and us um, where we live from this place. You know, I think predominantly the messages that we've pretty much heard is that Christianity is about getting saved and then you go and you do some things and you try and reach some other people to get saved and there seems to be this perpetual round circle that you go around and that's about it. And you may go to Africa and you may start a children's home and that's all cool. And But there's way, way, way more than just that message. And that's the starting message. But we sort of made it the end message. <laughs> um, and I don't know about you, but the more I'm just meditating, not reading. It doesn't actually tell you to read the Bible. It says meditate. And so, you know, when you read, you read. I get to the end. Now what next? But when you meditate, you chew, you know, and you take one promise and you chew on it and you chew on it and you chew on it and you chew on it. And all of a sudden, that food that's being chewed starts to digest in you and all of a sudden that food starts to come alive in you. So no different to that biscuit. If you had a biscuit and you taste it and it goes down and your inner reality if you are hungry changes, that's what the word does. So you now are altered because you've chewed him, the word, which is Christ. And, um, you know, if we, if we just chewed on, if you believe in me, you will never die. I don't, <laughs> you know, it's like you could stay there for 10 years and go, I'm never going to die. Then why am I afraid of death? That makes no sense to be afraid of death because I'm never going to die. See, there's a living reality that trumps the other reality. And so now you're living free, aren't you? You're not bound by these things. Why? Because you've come into a substance. You've come into living manner, the bread of life, which is him. And that's what I love. That, that there, so there were so many powerful nuggets that were declared this morning, it was almost like, man, I felt like you were sort of spraying, like this sort of a like, when it was like, who wants that? Who wants that? Who wants that? And I found myself grabbing about three, you know, um, that whole obligation. I wrote it down, so I'm, you know, but that obligation, what was it about? Yeah, that it was, you know, it wasn't, the obligation was what went in, not what came out. That whole thing about what comes in. Um, no, I'm butchering it. Maybe I should just. Yeah, yeah. And that's what God's been doing here. God's been giving us food which goes in, which changes your output. And yet, so often we want the output. Give me the output. No, I'm going to give you the input. No, give me the output. No, I'm going to give you the input. And you have this wrestle. But if you have good input, you get output. If you don't have input, you get bad output. And um, and I just want to encourage us. There was there was there was sort of like 
so many living nuggets that were just sprayed. And um, I got three of them or four of them. <laughs> so I'm going to take them away and chew on them. And I want to encourage you to chew. You know, build up your jaw muscles by chewing. If you go to South Africa and have bultong, the stuff I got anyway, mate, I was chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing. Isn't this awesome? I'm going, no, it's horrible stuff. But then I had some real good stuff, and uh, it's quite nice. But, <laughs> mate, well, I've pulled wisdom teeth out. My... Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. So, Father, let's just pray. Father, we uh, as we position ourselves tonight, Lord, as we posture ourselves, Lord, may we be quick to hear and slow to speak. Lord, may you speak to us through Johnny tonight. Um, Father, we pray that, that the utterance of you would be declared and that we would have ears to hear the word. Not the words, but the word, the posture that has been done in Johnny that he's trying to put English words to. So, Lord, I pray that you would lead us into all truth. And you've led us into a measure of truth, and you're leading us into more of you. And so, Father, we uh, we acknowledge again our utter dependency upon you. But, Lord, what we can do is position ourselves, And so we do that tonight while we trust in what you're going to do in and through us. So, Father, we just surrender and we submit and we place ourselves under you tonight. And we receive the grace gift on Johnny's life here. And we say, minister through that grace gift to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, well, come on, Mr. Gilling. Session two. Good evening. Did you have a good afternoon? What did you do? We decided to take the one sunny day that Wellington has had this year and go to t- go to Tipapa. <laughs> go inside. That's what the kids wanted to do, so we ran with it. Um, let me start uh, that whole governance thing. Um. It links to prayer, so trust me and we'll get there. Uh, we, um, when we were going through an incredibly difficult season and, and God hadn't yet... Uh, gosh, He's so patient to leave us where we're at to create the humility of heart to give us what He longs to give us. And by that I mean the nature of Christ. And we were still in that place of dwelling in the patience of God and it's very uncomfortable and... Um, I was going for a run. The, the Lord has, um, you know how Paul says, uh, I've learned to abide in much and I've learned to abide in little and, and abound in both. And um, we've had in a season, a difficult season of little, and then the Lord took us to this place where there was much. And we've been living on this property that has um, giraffe and zebra and just African animals everywhere. It's incredible. And um, spiritual pride in me wanted to go and live in the township um, because that looks better. <laughs> 
you know, that false identity of, oh, I'm a missionary, and I do the hard stuff, you know, and it's almost like for missionaries, the best missionary was the most depressed because they were living in the worst circumstances, you know, that was kind of like the scale of success, and uh, I don't like that word missionary, people say to me, oh, you're a missionary, and I'm like, no, only if you are, um, we're, we're all in the same boat. You know, there are a lot of statements that are created to separate us and feed pride. You know, people have said to us as we've walked through what we're walking through so often, uh, you know, you must have such a significant calling um, if, if God is, is, is walking you through this. And I'm like, we have the same calling. His name is Jesus. <laughs> um, we just create these things to make us feel better along the way. <laughs> and um, so we're living on this property, and, and um, I started running. Uh, I couldn't keep up with my little boys, let alone my big boys. And uh, I discovered that Bex would look after all the kids if I went for a run, but she wouldn't look after all the kids if I wanted to watch TV. So it was just worth going for a run, you know? So I was going for these runs, and one day I'm running. And um, as I'm running, the, the, the purpose of my heart is to abide. And, and I, I said to God, God, I, just, I, 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 I need you to speak to me. Like, if, if you don't speak, I die. And my heart wasn't in a great place. I wasn't trying to be bad, but I was struggling. And, and I'm running, and the Lord just, I felt to, to run to this specific place on the property. And the property's kind of in three levels. And all the houses up, up here, and there's a smaller sort of middle level, and there's a big lower level. And there's animals all around, but a lot of the animals hang out in this bottom level. And I run to the middle level where there's a lookout. And that's for a field to run to. And I look out and it's, I don't know, July, August, which is, you know, pretty much the middle of winter and it's very, very dry. And as you look out over the natural landscape, what you see is just death. You see dead grass, dead trees, everything's brown, everything's dusty. It's not, there's no green anywhere. Um, it hasn't rained for months and months and months and it's like, 40 degrees, you know, so the sun's beating down and, and there's no rain and I'm looking at this dry, dry, dry area. And then beyond the dry area, there's a dam, which is actually full of water. And beyond the dam, there's this orange plantation and the trees are green. And so I'm looking at dry death, water and green. And one thing I love about when, when your heart's yielded and the Lord asks you a question, he asks it because he's giving you the answer. You actually learn to yield to his answer in the question. You know, the Lord asks you a question and you don't try and come up from within yourself what the answer is because you're writing a test. He asks you a question and, and, and you somehow in him have an answer that you didn't have and you didn't have. He's here, but, but you never had it. And he says to me, what do you, where, where do you want to be? And I'm like, I want to be in the green. And he says, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in the dry. So it's the other way around. Where are you? I'm in the dry. Where do you want to be? I want to be in the green. What's the difference between the two? Governance. I knew it immediately. What's the difference between the dry and the green? It's just governance. Because there's water there, but this place isn't getting any of the water, and that place is. And he started to, to just teach me about this gift of leadership in the body of Christ and how it will always, always define input. It will never define output. Governance, what it does is, is if the trees need water... Governance brings them water. If the trees need pesticide, governance brings them pesticide. If there's something wrong that's not right, and you know, if, there's, if there's flies on the, uh, on the um, trees or whatever, 
The, the, the farmer doesn't get out a fly swat and start attacking all the flies one by one. What does he do? He introduces in governance another element that combats the bad. And, and so often in the body of Christ what we've done is we've created this vision and, and, and dependent on the heart of the person that shares the vision, uh, the vision might be bananas. But you're an apple tree. And what control does is it comes and it waters you and you start producing bananas and it's like, no, 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 we need apples. You need to, you need to be an apple tree. And there's so many people in the body of Christ where because they've come under control, the, the, the fruit of who you are in Christ has not been able to come forward because someone's telling you what you should produce instead of the gift of leadership just bring the governance that allows you to be who you are. And, um, that's an example of abiding prayer. I was running. Um, I wasn't in the most great space with the Lord, but like everything, uh, abiding prayer rests on the grace of God and the goodness of God. We engage with Him based on His goodness, not, not ours. Um, I just want to spend a little bit of time. Um, the, the question that Greg uh, asked me to, to sort of address tonight is, um, what does abiding prayer sound like? And what does it look like? And, and I know he, he didn't mean what does it sound like. He mean, you know, what is, what is the essence of it? What, what, what's, the, what's the spiritual sound of it? And something that's always captivated me, um, in Exodus 19, uh, Moses goes, I think it's Exodus 19, Moses goes up the mountain. It says that for those that were on the ground looking at him, uh, it was as though there was fire on top of the mountain, so much so they feared for his life. It says that from Moses' experience, he went up the mountain and a cloud came and completely surrounded him. And, and the presence of God was manifest in an incredibly powerful way. Um, if you look at the Israelites' journey throughout Exodus, they had a spiritual encounter with God's CV that I would kill for. Think about what their reality was like. The ways they encountered the manifest presence of God. Like you imagine if I'm speaking and this cloud just starts to envelop us all, we'd be like... Whoa, <laughs> that'd be a big deal, right? Yeah. Happened frequently. <laughs> what was that? We'd be in tower. Boom. Anyway, you know, it, it says that they would set up the, the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. It says that Moses would, outside the camp, that Moses would go out to the tabernacle and as he entered the tabernacle, a cloud would come and rest at the door and it says every man, woman and child would stand at the door of their tent and worship the Lord. Phenomenal encounters with God. And yet those phenomenal encounters were not abiding. Why? Because it didn't produce the fruit that it was supposed to produce. If it did, they wouldn't have wandered in the desert for 40 years and a generation wouldn't have had to have died off. And one of the big mistakes we make is we say that the, when we encounter the presence of God, we say that's abiding, but it's not. I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. His presence is everywhere. So the fact that we encounter his presence in a phenomenal way doesn't actually mean anything. And I believe one of the big mistakes we've made over the past you know, few years as the presence of God has become so much more real and, and the manifest presence of God is that we've settled and become satisfied with the manifestation of his presence instead of engaging with his presence, yielding our hearts to his presence that we might get to the fruit that the presence is supposed to empower. 
And we see it in, a, in an incredible way in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Um, actually, let's, let's read it. Turn there, because then you might remember it. <laughs> Genesis is Numbers, Deuteronomy. I love you guys. It's so fun being here. Thank you for having me. Deuteronomy chapter 10. When I go to the US, no one can understand me. Because <laughs> it's not Deuteronomy, it's like Deuteronomy. <laughs> I was talking once about um, how marriage was getting better and better and better. Um, and, and everyone was looking, you know where I'm going, no. everyone's looking at me just like, huh? And, and I'm, I'm reinforcing the point, like it just gets better and better. But, but they thought I was saying bitter. <laughs> and, and this guy in the very back, like big, big room, very back, this guy's like, he means better! <laughs> and the whole place just lost it. I gotta admit, when I got on the Qantas plane and I started hearing like a, a Kiwi voice or two, I had a, a little tear in the dark as the lights went off. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 10. So Moses has received the Ten Commandments, he's come down the mountain, he's seen the people uh, have created this calf, he's thrown the tablets down in anger, he's, he's, that's been sorted out with God, and now the Lord says to him, come back up the mountain. 10 verse 1, at that time the Lord said to me, cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain, and make an ark of wood for yourself. Uh, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. Verse 5. So Moses went up the mountain. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. Um, the ark of the covenant was the presence of God. It, it was a wooden box overlaid with gold. It had a, a lid which is referred to as the mercy seat. It wasn't a seat. It was like a, a lid. And it had two cherubim on either end. And the presence of God would come and address Moses and the Israelites from the mercy seat. Um, I won't go there. And so Lord says, come back up, I'm going to give you the law. Who was the law for? The people, right? Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've got no sense of how to walk together. They don't really, they've been slaves for so long, they've lost all sense of being able to move with God and establishing good things. And God says, take what is for the people and put it inside a wooden box where no one can see it. It doesn't make sense to me. If I was God, I would say, okay, I'm going to give you two stone tablets with truth on it, and then I want you to find the most skilled stone cutters, and I want them to start making copies of these, these laws, and then I want you, Moses, to check them, because they have to be right. And for everyone that's right, I want you to take it, and I want you to put it up around the camp. So as people are living, they can chew. They can see. That's what I would have done. That's what would have made sense to me. And yet God says, no, take what is for the people and put it where the people can't see it. Why? Because the ways of God, the heart of God, the mind of God can only be revealed in the presence of God. And what we do is we stop and we settle for the presence because it feels good instead of going that step further and saying, who you are, I want to be. And I know I can't do it on my own, so I give you permission to speak to me from the place of mercy that you would transform me and I would walk as you are on the earth. 
as you did on the earth. We, 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 does that make sense? I, I, I find it so incredible that God established this thing of take what is for the people and put it back into my presence. And so often what we do is God gives us something, we run away to manifest it. <laughs> like we've been trying to move to Durban, long story. Um, but we're struggling with it um, because of the, the government department that we have to get permission from to change provinces in South Africa. We haven't legally adopted the boys. We'd, we'd love to, but it's just such a process. And so we've been struggling with this. And God whispered to us, I'm, I'm inviting you to come to Durban. And the danger there is that we would take our eyes off him to try and do what the Lord said and make going to Durban the goal instead of just keeping God as goal. Make sense? And so this thing of abiding, it's, it's not just encountering his presence because many people encounter his presence and don't change. Um, just while we were praying, I was meditating, uh, thinking about Colossians and, and you know, it says, for the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Do you always feel complete in Christ? I don't. I often feel very incomplete. Um, and, and we have this thing of Jesus on the cross crying out, it's finished. That Greek word teleo means to bring to an end, to close the last act which completes a process. And we talk about his work being a finished work. And yet Paul writes, therefore, put on the armor of God. And you're like, well, if it's a finished work, why do I need armor? Like, if it's a finished work, where's the battle? And, and you come to understand that it's a finished work, but there's a battle. <laughs> it's a completely finished work. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form, and in him I've been made complete. But the choosing of that completeness... It's not just coming into his presence and being continually in his presence. It's the choice to engage with his presence in such a way. You know, the difference between who I am now and the perfection of Christ is simply the measure of grace that I will allow God to work in my life. That's all it is. The measure of grace that I will allow. <laughs> he is the author and perfecter of faith. I'm okay for him to be the author, but my pride wants to be the perfecter in my life. Make sense? And so I just wanted to find that really, really clearly um, because abiding prayer is not just encountering his presence. Over and over again, I've encountered his presence and just walked away unchanged. Had a great emotional moment, but walked away unchanged. Um, all right, so what, what does abiding prayer sound like? Um, abiding prayer perceives from the person of Christ within towards situations on the earth. Um, come with me to Mark 8. Perceives from Christ within towards situations on the earth. Pretty familiar scripture. 8 verse 1. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, (laughs) I love how it's like in those days again. In other words, this has happened before. The disciples were in the presence of God, but they didn't engage with the presence and so they didn't change and therefore in his grace he had to do it again. (laughs) Anyone familiar with that reality? Sorry, Lord. (laughs) 
They had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, verse 2, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a very great distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Abiding prayer, um, it has this incredible way of starting with God and then addressing fact from the truth and the presence of the Lord. But the disciples didn't do that. What they did is they started with the facts and they brought the facts to Jesus. There's a big difference. One brings overcoming, one brings desperation, the wrong kind of desperation. And, and you know, we live in a world that is so, we've glorified the mind. And, and I, look, honestly, I think I have prayed for wisdom more than anything else. I remember my mum coming into my bedroom. I don't know if you remember this. When I was like seven years old. And she comes into my bedroom at night and she lies down on the bed because she used to do that almost every night, come and have a snuggle. And, you know, it was so cool because things that I was too ashamed or too scared to say in the light, I'd say in the dark. (laughs) So I try and do that with my boys as well. Um, But uh, she lies down and she starts talking about the wisdom of God. And she starts talking about this kingdom that is other. And she says to me, Johnny, do do you want to live your life from the wisdom of that kingdom or the wisdom of this earth? You have to choose. And I didn't, instinctively, I I, I didn't, it was just there. I was like, I I want the wisdom of the kingdom of heaven. And she started praying for me. And she she, read a scripture that says, if if any man asks for wisdom, God will gladly give it. And from that point on, if, if there's one thing I've prayed, Probably more than anything, it's God, give me wisdom. Give me the wisdom of the kingdom of heaven. I've prayed it over and over again. So I am for the wisdom of the kingdom of heaven. I am so for that. But one of the problems we have is we've developed this culture that starts with fact and tries to move its way to God. Science tries to disprove or prove God based on facts towards God. And there's incredible truths contained within science. I'm not knocking science. If God has graced you in that area and blessed you in that area, go for it. But just start with his presence and go that way. Don't come this way. It doesn't work. An abiding prayer always starts from the nature of God and addresses the circumstances of earth from there. We, we walked through something recently. I want to read you this because um, Bex wrote it. Um, and uh, there was one, um, we did pretty temporarily go from five kids to six kids. And um, I think some of you have, have, we maybe sent this to some of you, so sorry, but, but for some of you it'll be new. Um, it's called Hope. About a year ago, a little whisper started in my soul about a little girl named Hope. In September last year, she entered our world, and I was so not ready for her. Overwhelmed and sleep deprived and not ready for any stretch marks on our family heart. Beautiful, fragile. Oh, Jesus, help me. Born in a brothel. After only six months in her tummy mummy and abandoned before she reached full term. Hope. Cared for by a friend who knew her mother while she tried to desperately track her down and God waited patiently for me to speak up. When I finally did speak up in a tentative whisper, She was put in my arms and I brought her home and bundled her in pink. And by the time we went to bed that night, every single member of our family had quite mysteriously fallen in love. And it seemed like every hour that I woke up to her little cries, my heart enlarged 
and enlarged and enlarged beyond anything I might have imagined 24 hours earlier until the fear of stretch marks have been completely overshadowed by something wonderful, wonderful. The next day we took her to the clinic for what looked like a yeast infection. She, would, she was admitted to hospital that night. Three days later she was fighting for her every breath while we were fighting for someone to please do something. She was eventually diagnosed with full-blown AIDS. Her immune system depleted to the point of being unable to fight off whatever other minor infection she might have had. For the next 10 days, I drove into the city to hold her hand and squat by her bed and sing hope over her every chance I could. The boys prayed, baby, hope, hope. <laughs> so Kai and Zion were like two somewhere around there and they talked about baby, hope, hope. The boys prayed, baby, hope, hope prayers and sent me off with little love messages and Swinky searched the scriptures for Hope's verse. And every day the nurses turned her oxygen off and chased me out with foul scowls and reminded me that only the real mothers are supposed to be here. In the meantime, my truly wonderful friend invested hours into chasing her mother, Hope's mother, who ran and ran and kept on running, leaving this tiny treasure to the care of God in much the same way she had already done with two other babies before. And I prayed for grace and for this mother, and for my own not ready heart, because I have living, because I've been living this for long enough to know that one way or another, every she is also me. <laughs> one of the things I love about ministering to the poor, and I mean poor generically, is that I'm reminded that I am the poor. I don't go and minister to someone from a position of strength. I go it's like I cried out and you found me in the dust. And when I'm ministering to someone who's materially poor, I don't go as the strong man with resource. I go and take my place on the dust and sit with the one who is me because every him is me and every she is Bex. And I drive home every day through tears for all the burnt and broken and seeping bandaged, tired-eyed children in the hospital ward. And for hope, and she, and me, I cut brightly coloured spring blossoms from the trees in our garden. And every day I pruned, I prayed that this little hope girl would be the kind of seed that we would get to watch grow, like those spring blossoms, and not the kind that must fall in order to bear its fruit. Tending hope while contending with hopelessness, tending life while contending with death, and all the while gaining greater glimpses of a greater glory garden. When Hope took her last earthly breath, the nurses didn't call us. By the time we got there, she'd already been moved, set aside for the other mother who had been unwilling to visit. I didn't get to wrap her or kiss her goodbye. Everyone around us was busy stopping for other ones, so our family didn't get to celebrate Hope's life with anyone else that week. But we did get to usher her into the arms of love, and we did get to call her beautiful. And we did get to lay our hearts in the same hands that now hold hers. And we do get to hold on to hope eternal in the midst of a world that is so not worthy of his best, but often gets it anyway. During my hours of hope gazing, the verse that kept coming to me was Psalm 45. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many coloured robes, she is led to the king. A few nights after she passed into life, capital L, I was standing in the kitchen with our Walter doing dishes. Out of nowhere, he says, Mama, I can see hope. 
she's with Jesus in the garden and she looks like a princess. He goes on to describe her, crowned and clothed in garments of color and gold. She's beautiful, he says, and I smile big. The, the reason I share that, <laughs> in the most messed up way, because our abiding is in Christ towards the situations of the earth, while it tore our heart, it was a blessed tearing that more of Christ might be revealed and ministered to us. It was a good thing. It, it, it was a horrific thing, but it was a good thing in, in the eyes of the kingdom and in the eyes of the revelation of Christ. And, and, and I, I can't, the only way you can describe it is to, to completely separate the reality of this earth and the reality of the kingdom. Because if you call it a good thing, it sounds callous. Because a little baby girl suffered and died. But because we were grounded in the king, I, I watched my wife go into that hospital. And the public hospital, the, the kids' wards in the public hospitals are just, oh, they're so, they're just evil. They're actually just demonic, I think. And I watched her go in day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out and day in day out. And, you know, she's not perfect. And for one or two moments, she just bawled her eyes out and sought refuge in my arms. But for the most part, she was wrapped up in Christ, perceiving towards earth. And abiding prayer does that. It means that when the nurses chase you out because you're asking for an oxygen mask so this little baby doesn't have to fight to breathe and can at least die peacefully, you don't attack the nurses because you're abiding, perceiving from heaven to earth. The spirit that you operate towards them in is the spirit of Christ. It aligns perfectly to the nature of Christ. And it doesn't mean that you're passive or you're a pushover or you just, you know, it, 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 it means that you bring authority but you never move into ugly aggression. You never move into, well, it is her right. <laughs> you, you perceive from a different place and therefore you minister from a different place. Abiding prayer proceeds from the person of Christ within towards situations on the earth. Um, second thought about abiding prayer, it will always overcome and defy fleshly emotion with kingdom character. Come with Acts 16. Always overcome and defy fleshly emotion with kingdom character. It's not that fun because sometimes I just want to display fleshly emotion. <laughs> Once again, familiar story. Alright, verse 22. Paul and Silas, uh, verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be deep beaten with rods. When they'd struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Um, 
abiding prayer will always, not always, abiding prayer will many times have an impact on the lives of those around you who do not know him. Because your chains fall off, their chains will fall off. It's one of the wonders of abiding prayer. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, I... I don't think Paul and Silas disciplined themselves to worship at midnight after being beaten with many blows. I don't think after walking through something that would have felt emotionally like the abandonment of God, they sat in a prison and went, the good principle is to worship the Lord in all things. So Silas, let's worship. I don't think they did that. I think probably what happened is throughout their lives, God poured out a grace, because it always starts with grace. I'm going to keep saying that. Always, always, always. God poured out a grace for them to get the revelation of what it is to praise the Lord in all things. And in that grace, they experienced it. Somewhere along the line, they brought discipline to the grace. Because you know when God does something, you experience it, and it's like, wow, that's so cool. You know, like for, for those of you that have received the gift of tongues, the first time you prayed in tongues, it's like, ah! you know? <laughs> it's like, this is awesome! Maybe you've been praying for it for ages, and, and, and you experience it, and it's like spiritual high. But what happens? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Don't really pray in tongues anymore. So when it starts as a grace gift, we add our discipline to it and then somewhere along the way in the mix of his grace and our yes, it becomes natural and it's a character formed within us. So I don't have to discipline myself to speak in tongues anymore. It actually happens by instinct because it's who I am. And I believe that's what was happening with uh, Paul and Silas. It was that their fleshly emotion of being beaten and their flesh was screaming out to them, God has abandoned you, you're going to die. I mean, it doesn't always go swimmingly. John the Baptist had his head cut off. <laughs> you know? It, it, they, they'd, they'd heard this, they'd seen this story be told out. And, and the flesh is screaming out. They put us in the absolute inner, inner, inner prison. What's going to happen to us tomorrow? And yet somewhere along the way, because they had taken the grace of God, added their discipline to it, there was this character of worship in them that defied and overcome what their flesh was screaming at them. And abiding prayer will always do that. It will make you... Um, it's like when we tell people about hope. And they're like, oh, you must have been so angry with the hospital. Well, no, I wasn't. Do I pray for it to be different? Yes. Do I pray for revelation to come to the nurses? Yes. Do I pretend to have the right to judge who they are just because I witnessed a few days? No. And there was no anger in us. There was grief. But there was no anger because there was this thing within us that went actually, because we've abided with the Lord in the midst of this poverty, the kingdom character has to overcome what we feel. I was driving through, 
I love New Zealand. I was driving on your roads, our roads that are like flat and there's no potholes and like there's footpaths and it's just awesome. And I was driving up to Waikawa Beach just south of Levin the other night and this thought's just ticking around, you know, my head and my heart going, oh, I wonder if we could move back here. I wonder if we could move back here. And my flesh is like, move back here. And, and I didn't even have to think about it. There was this instinct of like, Christ isn't done. My flesh wants to move back here. Why would I stay over there? <laughs> I mean, we've got a department that doesn't really trust us, a government department that doesn't trust us. Because let's be honest, why would we take in five kids and want to take in more? Like, why would you? We've got a department that's looking at us going, are you like child traffickers? Are you into a pornography ring? They don't come and talk with the kids. They don't come and visit. There's just this judgment from afar. I can't get a job in the country because I have a volunteer's visa, so I'm not allowed to work. And it should be that way because there's plenty of people over there with no jobs and they don't need us coming and, you know, taking jobs that they haven't had the opportunity to get. Uh, it's hot, uncomfortably hot, and I have no friends. <laughs> I had one friend, but he moved. <laughs> so why, why would I stay there? And my flesh is screaming all this stuff, and yet because it's been screaming that for three years, I've either had to give in to it or receive a kingdom character through abiding with prayer in such a way that when the voice comes, there's this instinct within me. I don't have to go, no, God's still there for us. Discipline yourself to stay, Johnny. I want to go back. I mean that. Even if I die there, I want to go back. Even if something terrible happens, I want to go back. Because my... Maybe this will just be a helpful summary. My soul, my mind, my will, my emotions. We are flesh, we are soul, we are spirit. Spirit is always yielded to Father. Flesh is always yielded to sin. My mind, my will, and my emotions will decide at any given moment whether it wants to yield to spirit and therefore be connected to the truth of the kingdom or yield to flesh and therefore be connected to the truth of this earth. And what abiding prayer does is it places my mind and my will emotions permanently here so that I am able to overcome fleshly realities eventually by instinct because I'm grounded in kingdom. Make sense? Moving on. Um, Abiding prayer is totally consumed with ministering not to people, programs, vision, or doing good things for God. Instead, its only value is to live learning to minister to the presence of the Lord. Abiding prayer is not consumed with ministering to people. It's consumed with learning to minister to the presence of the Lord. Come with me to um, 2 Samuel 6. Second Samuel 6. You, you're all very quiet. You're like, but people are supposed to get ministered to. You're right, they are. So the Philistines have captured the ark in battle. Um, Israel treated the presence of the Lord like a like a, a good luck charm. 
And they took the presence of the Lord into battle because that's what God had done previously, but he wasn't doing it this time. The Philistines captured the presence of God. They put God in the temple dedicated to their God, Dagon, and when they woke up in the morning, the statue of Dagon had fallen over and part of it was snapped off. I forget which bit. And so they moved it uh, out, to, a, and then calamity started to come on the city and, and curses and all sorts of stuff. And then they moved the presence of the Lord to another city and the same thing happened in that city and the presence of the Lord to that city and the same thing happened in that city and the presence of the Lord to that city and that city and then they finally said, I think God wants to be with Israel and they sent the presence of the Lord back to Israel and uh, the oppression lifted. And the ark is not in Jerusalem where David is and David wants the presence of the Lord to be at the centre of the nation. And uh, we pick it up, Second Samuel 6 verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David asked, how can the presence of the Lord come to me? Um, I remember reading that years ago. And, uh, sorry? Oh, who else has heard it? Sorry. You can leave now if you want. <laughs> I remember reading that years ago and just going, man, that's a bit rough. Like, hang on a minute. We, we, it says there were thousands, 30,000, 30, I can't remember, 70,000 lots, sorry? 30,000 people dancing and praising the presence of the Lord. They make a new cart, they put the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God on the cart, and they're leading it. And they get to this one place, and the oxen kind of trip and start to fall, and the presence of the Lord starts to fall off the cart, and one of the guys sees it and reaches out to stop it from falling and puts his hand out, and God strikes him down and kills him for his irreverence. That's a bit harsh, eh? I mean, you imagine if I'm talking and I come down here and I trip up. <laughs> and, you know, this wonderful man grabs me and stops me from falling and I'm like, BAM! And he dies. <laughs> You'd be like, time to go. <laughs> That's harsh, right? <laughs> it wasn't prophetic in any way. We just, we just minister... Long life and... <laughs> I remember talking to the Lord about it and saying, God, what was going on? And his initial reply was, I never stumble. See, if the presence of the Lord is coming off the cart, it's because the presence of God wants to get off the cart. I never stumble. God doesn't fall off a cart. He's not like you or I. He's perfect. And what was happening was you had a group of people that were ministering to an event, ministering to a procession, ministering to the people that had gathered. And so he wanted this guy Uzzah to stay on the cart. And God said, I'm getting off the cart because I told you I would not rest on the creation of man. I will only rest on the creation of God. How did he want to be carried? He wanted to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. I will move on my creation. I will not move on your creation. 
That's why as we build what we feel, he's calling us to build. If he says build a children's home, we'll build it. And if six months later he says tear it down, we'll tear it down because his presence does not rest on the building. We want his presence to be there. But we are consumed with ministering not to people or, or events or a program or a vision. We're trying to minister to him. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to bless you tonight. I want you to be blessed. I'm not trying to minister to you. I want you to be ministered to. But I trust the way that you'll be most blessed if if I minister to him and in that he ministers to you. Why is prayer so often this? It's not. It's, it's this and this. Why do we, why, why do we try and pray in such a way that a person next to us gets inspired and we find ourselves more praying to the group than actually just praying to him? It doesn't say anything about articulation. Worshippers, it says make a joyful noise. It doesn't even say be in tune. I'm deadly serious. I am deadly serious. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is another argument for country. Greg can have country. I'll let him have country. Greaser. <laughs> the world is consumed with gifting. The kingdom is about anointing. What we've done is, what I've done, is I, my flesh appreciates a cultivated gift. But what the kingdom about is about is when someone who's gifted in a particular area uses that gifting to minister to the Lord in such a way that the presence of the Lord starts to rest upon the gift so that when they do it in public, you experience the presence of God, therefore coming to know more of who he is. The Western church has developed, because we're a part of the West and it's about how well you sing, we've developed this appreciation for improved gifting instead of anointing. I'll never forget saying to the Lord, I mean, I, I feel like this is what I'm called to and, and, and I feel like such a noob in it and I've got so much to learn. But I remember talking to the Lord one day on an airplane going, God, I feel like I'm called to this. How do I grow? And he said, don't try and learn to speak, just learn to listen. Don't cultivate this, cultivate this. It, it's, it's the difference between you getting a say on my emotional state and him having a say on my emotional state. Now, do I love you? Absolutely. Will I listen to you and be humble before you? Absolutely. Do I want you to be ministered to? Absolutely. Do I want to be defined by what you think of me? No way. Because if you like me, my pride will feed off it. And if you don't like me, my pride will feed off it. My pride will either grow in being accepted or it will feel wounded because it feels rejected. And so, what Uzzah did, if he was consumed with ministering to the presence of the Lord, he would have gone, God, you're moving, what's going on? He wouldn't have gone and get back on the cart. God said, I'm moving. Uzzah said, no, you're not. God said, yes, I am. And that was that. You know, I, I, think, of, um, I think of the temple structure. You know, the, the temple that David planned that Solomon built. And you had the outer court of the Gentiles and the outer court of the woman. And then you had the, uh, the places where the sacrifices were given. And then you had all around the outside 
the outer court of the priests, and then you had the building in the middle. So everything was, all of that was outdoors. Then you had the building in the middle, which was the holy place when you went in initially, and then you had the curtain, which separated the presence of the Ark of the Covenant from the people, uh, and that was the Holy of Holies. This is the point. Everybody faced the presence. Nobody was ministering to people. The priests faced the presence of the Lord. The people faced the presence of the Lord. It was actually all about ministering to the people. It wasn't, sorry, the people ministering to the Lord. It wasn't at all about ministering to people. If, If we were ever to build a building where the body of Christ gathered, where the church gathered, I don't know I'd do it like this. I might, I don't know, because ultimately how the building looks doesn't matter. It's what our hearts do in the context of the building. So ultimately it doesn't matter. But, but my instinct would be to have, like, let's, let's say um, this is the front. My instinct would be to set up a stage over here that faced that way. Maybe not even a stage, I don't know. And have the musicians and the, and, and, and the singers here. And have all the people around here and have something here that maybe changed as God directed, that represented who he is, and together we would just minister to his presence. I wouldn't set it up with a stage where the people are looking at the musicians and the musicians are looking at the people because our eyes are in the wrong place. You know, Jaden, I love Jaden. He sent me a message. He said, hey, bro, are there any songs you want for Sunday morning? And I just flicked back and said, you sing whatever is on your heart to sing to Jesus. And you go, and anybody that wants to come will go, and anybody that doesn't won't, and you can't change whether someone does or doesn't want to go more deeply into the presence of the Lord by how well you sing or how well you play. You can maybe affect their fleshly emotional experience, but you cannot change their heart. And so we've built up this thing that exists on ministry unto people instead of a priesthood that ministers unto the Lord. And abiding prayer does that. Abiding prayer is consumed with ministering to the presence of the Lord. It abides in Him, for Him, unto Him alone. People get blessed by it, but it's never the goal. Um, one last story and then we'll close. Um, I, in my travels I met um, a young man. He would have been, oh, at the time, 36. And uh, I flew into New York and the person who was hosting me picked me up and said, hey, there's a guy in hospital, uh, he's 36, he's got four kids, he's been diagnosed with terminal cancer and has been given three months to live. Can we go visit him and can you pray for him? And um, whenever someone asks me that, I always, look, I believe in healing. I believe in, I believe if we are not seeing the power of God displayed amongst us, something is not right. But I also believe that our pursuit should never, ever, ever be the power of God. You know, God, God, Jesus in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 11, he says, woe to you. And he starts naming the towns where most of his miracles were done. And he condemns these towns where the power of God was displayed in a way that it wasn't displayed anywhere else. And he says, if the, if the miracles that were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you on the day of judgment. In other words, the place where the miraculous occurs has absolutely no value unless it leads to the character and the nature of Christ being more fully displayed. In fact, it attacks, it attracts the condemnation of Christ. So we don't pursue the miraculous, we pursue Christ, the one who is the miraculous. And as, and so when I'm, I'm praying for someone who's sick, 
my first thing is, God, what are you doing? Is this like a um, by your stripes they're healed scenario? Or is this a my grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in your weakness scenario? Because it could be either. I, I believe it's God's ultimate intention to heal every one of us, but that means the flesh dies and we come into a whole new reality. And so this person says, can we go pray? And um, I'm like, I'm like, God, do we go pray? Because I'm not trying to minister to a person in a hospital or impress the person I'm sitting next to. I'm just trying to minister to you. Do we go pray? And the Lord says, yes, and so we go. And I walk into this hospital room and this guy stands up and walks over towards me and I kid you not, life walked across the room to me. The substance of life came across the room. And I shook his hand and he said, hey, and he told me his name. And I realized that this was the guy with cancer who was supposed to die in three months because it was the same name. And I was shocked because he was the substance of life. And we chatted for uh, like about 30 seconds. And he said, I'm just going to go out on a limb and be honest with you and see what happens. I just feel like I can be honest with you. And he just started to pour his heart out. And he's like, I don't believe God gave me the sickness. I don't believe the sickness is from God. I want to be healed by the Lord. I've got a wife and four kids, but I am so grateful that the Lord allowed what he has allowed because my heart has never been in this place of ministering to his presence ever, ever, ever before. And and life. And so we chatted for about half an hour and we just, Jesus is just bouncing around. And then he has to go and get a needle in his arm and get some chemo. And he's like, do you want to come? And I'm like, sure, why not? And we're sitting in this chemo room and it's just got curtains separating the other chemo rooms. And there's no sound barrier, but we're just like, Jesus. And um, his wife was there and I was wearing a jacket. And um, it had like tweed on the elbows. Uh, I know it sounds really bad, but it was actually quite styly. <laughs> And um, and that morning, his his sister's brother's wife, so like his brother-in-law's wife, had sent a text message to um the sister, his wife, saying, "I see a man who you don't know." coming into the hospital wearing a jacket with tweed on it. I see him praying for you. I see you being healed. And I see you getting up, pulling the needle out of your arm and walking out of the hospital healed. And they didn't see it at first because it was like this patch on my elbows. And then Scott said to me, hey, can you pray for me? And I'm like, only if you can pray for me. Because you are in Christ. Like I am in Christ. So I'll pray for you if you pray for me. And, I, and he's like, yep, sure. And I put my arm up to start praying for him. And his wife started laughing and started crying all at the same time. And she got out her phone and she read it. And we just started giving glory to God. And, and uh, I prayed for him and he prayed for me. And we all laughed and we all cried. And Jesus had an amazing time. And um, then I left. And uh, I flew home. And about two months later, I got an email from him. And uh, he says to me, how to scan? And um, the scan shows that the tumor has halved in size. And my doctor walked into my room and said, I'm a complete atheist, but I can't explain this. All I can say is keep praying. It's working. And we're like, wow, this is awesome. And uh, you know, we chatted back and forth and, and emailed back and forth. And um, then I got an email from him about three months later saying, hey, I had another scan and, and the tumor hasn't grown, but the cancer has popped up in other parts of my body. 
And uh, then I saw him about six months after that, and, and he was doing okay, not great, not bad, but okay. And I just went on a trip, and uh, I got back, and I was praying for him. I hadn't seen him on that trip, but I was praying for him, and the Lord just showed me that things were getting pretty desperate. And I sent an email to his wife uh, saying, hey, I've just been praying for you. I feel like God's showing me that things are pretty desperate. And she emailed back uh, saying, yeah, they are. Please pray. And so I started to cry out for him. And the Lord showed me a picture which I, I won't share because I want to honor the people involved. But you know how when the Lord shows you something, your question is, well, how, how would I respond? He, he gives us sight. And when he gives us sight, I don't trust my heart to respond in the way that's right. So I ask him, how would you have me respond? And he said to me very clearly, get on a plane, go and lay hands on him and pray for him again. And I'd just been in the U.S. like three days earlier. My like, God, can't I just do it from here? Or like, can't I just post a handkerchief? Or why couldn't you have told me three days ago? It would have been a little less expensive and a little more convenient. And uh, Bex had had a particularly difficult time while I was away. It was still while we were at the children's home and, and a lot of things had happened there. And so I said to the Lord, okay, I'll go, but you have to tell Bex. <laughs> And any of you that say that's fair, it's not. It's just wisdom. <laughs> but seriously, it is wisdom. Because the Lord can minister something to a spouse's heart that you cannot. There's a time to speak up when the Lord says speak up and there's a time to just pray. My wife prayed for my pride for four and a half years and never said a word. I didn't even know. And she just prayed. And it hurt her more than anybody. And then one day I went on a retreat with the Lord and he revealed it to me and I came home and, and, and I shared it with her and she just started weeping and she said, I've been praying for you that for four and a half years. And the thing is, if she had have said it to me, I would have been hurt and offended. But when the Lord said it to me, he ministered it to me in such pure love that all I could do was weep that I was loved that much in the midst of my ugliness. There's a time to speak up and there's a time to stay silent. And I knew it was a time to stay silent because she'd had a really, really hard time. So I said to the Lord, okay, that's cool, I'll go, but, but can you please minister it to Bex? Because you can do it in a way that I can't. And if you tell me to tell her, I'll tell her, but, but just you, you're, you're better. <laughs> And I got up the next morning to go and make coffee, which is my morning routine, because the day just goes better if Bex has coffee before she gets out of bed. And she got out of bed, and uh, before I made the coffee, which was miraculous in and of itself, and she comes to the kitchen, and she puts her hand on my shoulder, and she says, you need to go to Scott, don't you? And I burst out crying and said, yeah, I need to go. And I jumped on the internet and booked a flight, jumped on a plane and flew to the States. Uh, I got off the plane, and again, I I knew what the Lord had said, but it, it, when you're ministering to His presence, you only step according to the step that He's given you. What What you and I often do, well, maybe not you, I know me, is the Lord gives you a step, and we go, And we wonder why we find ourselves broken at his feet because it hasn't gone how we thought it was going to go. I've spent so many times... <laughs> many times I've said to the Lord, I know what you said, but what did you mean? And so I got off the plane and I said, God, what do I do now? Because I know you told me to come and pray for him, but when do you want me to pray for him? And God very clearly said to me, don't go now, go tomorrow. And so I didn't. I went and did some other things. Um, it's quite a fun story, but I won't go there because it's too long. Uh, the next morning, I started driving out to his house, and I got a phone call from his wife. And uh, she said, hey, he stopped breathing two minutes ago. 
and I drove into their house 35 minutes after he stopped breathing. And I walked into a corpse, uh, a warm corpse, but a corpse. And um, we laid hands and we... <laughs> I love the, the flow, the ebb and the flow and the, the declaring and the resting and, and, and the aggression of the kingdom and the, the humility and the peace and the rest of the kingdom. And it was like Holy Spirit was just... We would swell into this declaration as the father whispered words over, over this man. <laughs> and then as the words stopped, we would just step back because there is a time to press on in faith, but you press on in faith when you carry the conviction that that's what ministering to him looks like. When you don't, you just follow his lead. <laughs> and and I remember we, it was so beautiful. And then one moment I stepped outside the grace and I started to declare life over Scott. And the Lord instantly showed me a picture of Christ and her and Scott standing face to face. And the Lord said to me, do you really want to interrupt this? And I said, no, I don't, but I want him back on earth because what he's getting now, I need, this world needs. And we felt the conviction. The funeral guys came to pick him up. They were really great. They left him at the house all day and then they had to come and pick him up because um, otherwise they'd get arrested and so would we. And so they, they put him in the basement at the funeral home and they left the door open. They said, you can pray as long, pray as, long as you want. And in a, in a, you know, we're going to have to do some things in, in a day or so, but uh, you pray. And a bunch of us prayed all night and went back in the morning and prayed all morning. And uh, nothing happened. And uh, it was one of the most surreal experiences of my life. I, I felt really good. <laughs> um, his wife was just, gosh, one of our heroes because she was experiencing so much emotionally, but it wasn't defining her in the moment. It was real and she was grieving and, and she would weep, but it wasn't a weeping outside his presence. And then she would, you know, I, I love, you know, in... in, in um, Samuel, David and his men go out to take on a battle and some others, I think the Amalekites come and take away all their women and children and all their cattle and destroy their home. And it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. And everybody preaches that. David strengthened himself in the Lord and they go and win the victory. I love that. Do you know what the line before it says? David cried until he could cry no longer. (laughs) See, pride wants to jump to strengthening myself in the Lord. (laughs) <laughs> but there's a place in the Lord to weep until you can weep no longer. And, and you know, so she, she, would, she would weep, and, and yet it wasn't a weeping outside his presence. It was, it was a weeping in his presence, and then she would be strengthened in the Lord. And, and oh, just an incredible experience. And I got, uh, I wanted to stay. Like, I really wanted to stay. And God was saying, okay, it's time to go. And so I left. And, and thank you, thanks be to God that the people that were there could, could sense what God was doing and, and they didn't, they weren't like, you're leaving now? What are you doing? But even if they were, I, I would have said, look, I'm really sorry, I love you, and, and, but I can't stay, I've got to go. Cause, cause God's telling me to leave and I'll hear you out and I'll pray with you and I'll, I'm happy to lay it as a question on the table unto His presence. But, you know, this is what the Lord said and I jumped, uh, I went to the airport and, uh, I'm sitting in the airport. Um, I went and had a shower in the lounge and uh, I turned on the water full volume and I just sat on the shower floor for like an hour and a half. 
which is probably quite gross because it's a public shower. But they clean it between uses, so it's okay. And I just sat on the floor and I'm like, okay, King, like, talk to me. It wasn't like a, what just happened? It was like a, what, what, what just happened? And I'm sitting on the shower and that scripture in Hebrews 12 just immediately comes to mind and it's not a scripture I've meditated on a lot. I mean, I'm familiar with it, but it's, I don't think I've ever meditated on it before, really. And it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sin which entangles us and every hindrance which encumbers it and come, and come, thank you, encompasses us and let's run the race that he set before us to run. And those first few words captivated me. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, have you ever wondered what the witnesses see? Because my friend's just died, so he's a witness. And I'm sitting on the shower floor butt naked. Is that what he sees? (laughs) That was my question. No, but seriously, what do they see? If we have these witnesses watching us that are cheering us on and encouraging us in the race, what do they see? And I said to the Lord, God, what do they see? And they said, they see at any given moment, one, if your heart is surrendered to ministering unto me, and two, if so, in what measure? They don't see my sin because God loves me and he won't wrong me like that. They just see whether in the moment my heart is yielded to to flesh or yielded to spirit, yielded to the kingdom of God or yielded to the kingdom of darkness. And that moment has defined uh, so hugely the position of my heart over the last sort of year Um, because there's so much freedom in it when you're just ministering to the Lord. So much freedom. I think the rest that Hebrews talks about, um, that's a part of the rest. Enter the rest. Be careful to enter the rest. There's this resting place of abiding prayer where I'm just consumed with ministering to him and the opinions of flesh fall off and the people around me only get a vote in my life when their voice aligns to his. It doesn't mean I become hardened. It doesn't mean I become arrogant. It doesn't mean I don't listen to the voices. It doesn't mean I move in pride and say, well, God's told me. But this thing of, of abiding prayer and ministering to the presence of the Lord has just captured my heart. So um, I hope that blesses you. Um, I'd, I'd love to, I think there's some questions. Um, and, and I don't know if this is okay, but, but what I'd like to do is just completely throw the expectation of formats out because you're not trying to minister to a program or minister to questions. You're ministering to the presence of the Lord. And so what I'd love you to do is ask him what he has for you in this moment. And if it's to stay and hang and, and go through some of the questions, the questions are very broad and about him and engaging with him. So minister to him and that do. If you want to go sit in a corner, do. If you want to go home, do. If you want someone to pray for you, ask the person next to you to pray for you. Just, just be free in learning. No, that's wrong. Be free to allow the grace of his presence to teach you what it is to minister to his presence in this moment. Because if there's one thing I've learned, uh, it's that he's a good father and good fathers speak to their kids. And I want to make it about my capacity to hear because that glorifies me, but it's actually about his capacity to speak because that glorifies him. So let him speak to you. 
Ask him how you minister to him in this moment and then do it. And trust that if you're being deceived, a good father will speak out louder to correct you because that's what a good father does. If my little boys thought I said, hey guys, go jump off the deck and kill yourself and I see them getting up to jump off the deck, I'll call out louder in a voice that says, hey, I'm real father, don't do that. And if they keep doing it, I'll run and take them in my arms to protect them from hurt that comes from deception when I know their hearts are yielded to me. So as long as your heart is yielded, it's not about your capacity to hear. Go with what you feel. Uh, And that's how the voice of the Lord, I I think, grows in our hearts. Um, Love you big. So looking forward to hanging with you again Sunday morning. Um, Father, I... God, each of us have what we have because you've given it. And we're just so grateful to you. We want, we want you to have your glory. We want you to receive in full the absolute scandal of the wonder that you allow us to minister unto you. You don't need it. In fact, it costs you. It costs you your son. And yet you invite us into it that we might be known by you and therefore know you. And so I just ask for the realized grace in each of our lives to go forward ministering to your presence, to be aware of your presence. You're everywhere, but we're not always aware that you're everywhere. And to know what it is not to hide in a religious set of principles or events and instead have an intimacy with you that goes beyond all of that in a precious way. I thank you for these people. I love them and I know that you love them so much more. I pray uh, your blessing upon each one of them. May they hear you and feel you and know you and in vulnerability be known by you in your precious name.